Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Northern Ireland is proving to be the single biggest risk to Brexit talks as negotiators struggle to reconcile competing demands for the UK to leave the customs union while keeping an open border between the Irish Republic and the North. We looked at the Northern Ireland border issue in our first season and we're returning to the topic nearly eight months on to see what progress has been made. To discuss this, I'm joined in the studio by James Blitz, our public policy editor, and down the line we have Arthur Beasley, the FT's Ireland correspondent, and Michael Dugan, Professor of European Law at the University of Liverpool. I'm going to start with you, James. The Irish border issue was a key component of the deal Prime Minister Theresa May reached with the EU in December that allowed the Brexit talks to proceed to the next stage. What exactly was agreed in relation to the Irish border and what remains to be settled? Well, I think it's important to start off by saying that there is a broad commitment from the UK, the Irish government and the EU that an invisible border needs to be maintained across the island of Ireland and that the maintenance of that border is absolutely essential to the continuation of the peace process. So that's the starting point. The question has always been, how can that border be maintained as invisible, given that the UK is leaving the European Union, and that border across the island of Ireland is going to be the European Union's one physical land border with the UK. Now, what basically has happened is that the Irish government and the EU have been putting more and more pressure on the UK to actually define how this border is going to remain invisible, because the detail here has been very unclear from the UK side. And what basically happened back in December in a sort of five-minute-to-midnight agreement so that you could get past the first phase of the talks was that the British government basically committed to one of three things. It said either we're going to maintain this invisible border as a result of the overall trade deal that occurs between the UK and the EU... But that's going to be very difficult because Britain is leaving the customs union and the single market. Or option B, the border is going to remain invisible because of some technological ideas, trusted trader schemes that the British and the Europeans are going to come up with, which basically means that lots of stuff is managed away from the border at factories and plants and so on. But there's a lot of scepticism on the Irish side about whether that works. And option C, therefore, if those two don't work, is that Northern Ireland and the Republic remain fully aligned in terms of their regulations. There's a lot of uncertainty over what full alignment would mean. But that's a very difficult outcome for the British as well, because the Northern Ireland unionists would see that as basically setting up a kind of border between Northern Ireland and the mainland. And so that's very roughly the conundrum. 
So, Michael, the legal expert David Allen Green suggested in an FT column that the December agreement has given the Irish government more practical power over the UK's future trade policy than Britain's own ministers, legislators and voters, because it can veto any deal that doesn't meet its demands for an open border. Do you agree with that? Um, I think here it's probably important to distinguish between the immediate negotiations on the withdrawal agreement and the negotiations on a future relationship, which would only be concluded after the UK has left. On paper, the withdrawal agreement can actually be agreed by a majority of the member states within the Council. So no one member state has a formal veto. In fact, the only individual player with a veto is the European Parliament. But the situation is much more complicated than that in practice, because the sort of ambitious withdrawal agreement and transition agreement that's being discussed by the UK and the EU would not only cover measures falling within EU competence, it would also cover measures falling within the power of the member states themselves. And we'd normally expect agreements like that, mixed agreements we call them, to be ratified not just by the EU, but by each and every individual member state in accordance with its own national law. Now, luckily for the UK, Politically, the EU27 already agreed at the very outset of the negotiations not to seek national ratification of the withdrawal agreement. They would just do it within the Council at the EU level. But that does mean, and this is where the problem arises, that the EU27 have to really maintain a high degree of unity. Because if a single member state were to become disgruntled, were to break ranks, it could renege on that political understanding and simply insist on its legal right of national ratification for the withdrawal agreement. So whatever the situation on paper, in practice, the UK's interests here really depend on keeping the EU27 not just happy, but also united. And as the negotiations have unfolded, it's become clear that certain issues are just so important to particular member states that the EU27 simply have to keep those countries on board in order to maintain the current agreement. That's true of Ireland and the border, but not just Ireland. It's also true, for example, of Spain and Gibraltar. If we then look at the future agreement, that is certainly going to be a mixed agreement, and it's very unlikely that the member states will give up their right of individual ratification over that agreement. So ultimately, when it comes to the future economic relationship between the EU and the UK, each individual country, whether it's Ireland or France, Germany or Malta, will have a decisive influence over the UK's economic future. One of the things that James mentioned was a use of technology to keep the border invisible and frictionless. Do you think this is realistic? Um, Not very. I think there's a couple of very important background points here to understand why the technological proposals of the UK government are not very realistic. And the first contextual point is that customs borders are not just about the payment of customs duties between the parties. They're not even just about making sure that third country goods which are in those two parties' territories pay their correct customs duties and don't benefit from privileges that they were never intended to have. In a way, the primary purpose of the customs border is regulatory enforcement of public safety standards, of environmental protection standards to counter smuggling and other types of illegal counterfeiting or criminal activity. And so a customs border isn't just about paying your taxes when you bring goods across. It's about a whole host of other regulatory interests and issues which are entirely legitimate. And of course, the common experience of humanity tells us that customs mean borders. Even in the context of very close customs and regulatory relationships, for example, between the EU and Norway, customs means borders. Now, against that background, the UK government, I suppose, has has made the situation arguably even more complicated by defining a hard border 
not merely as an absence of physical infrastructure, sort of customs points on the roads, but also as an absence of any related customs formalities such as checks or controls. That's quite a promise to make yourself that you're going to keep. And so it's really against that quite difficult background that the UK is pinning a lot of its hopes, as James said, on this deep and special partnership with the EU that would entirely remove the need for customs and regulatory enforcement, either between the EU and the UK in general, or at least between the Republic and Northern Ireland in particular. But really, the government is relying on some proposals which were made last summer of two main types. And the first one is to rely precisely, as you said, on technologies that would simply remove the need to have customs posts and customs checks. The problem is that those technologies don't exist. And in any case, it's widely accepted that even if they did exist, they wouldn't address all of the other regulatory enforcement problems which go with a customs border, not just the tariff issues or the paperwork. The other solution which has been proposed by the government, we'd really see the creation and imposition of a massive bureaucracy on public and private actors across the whole of the UK, effectively requiring us to track the manufacture, the import, the export, even the sale, perhaps, of all goods within the domestic territory. That's simply an unworkable proposal. So really, I get the feeling that at some point, the government is just going to have to admit that it can't deliver everything it's promised to the various and competing stakeholders involved. And when that happens, some promises are going to have to be broken, and some people are not going to be very happy. If it's Ireland and the EU, then the UK could see its hopes for a withdrawal agreement, a transitional agreement, or at least a future relationship seriously dented. If it turns out to be the DUP, then the government could see its parliamentary prop disintegrate in the House of Commons. Arthur, what's your view on the practicality of a frictionless border? I think it's going to be rather difficult. I think there is some confidence amongst people who have experience of the frontier between Sweden, which is in the EU, and Norway, which isn't, that technology is available. But when you talk to business people, they say that it's going to take much longer than anyone in London thinks because software programs are going to have to be programmed specifically for each individual company that's going to be sending material over and back across the border. There's also a problem when it comes to imports and exports of food and of animals that European law holds that the inspections must take place at the frontier itself. And when you speak to experts, they say the only way around that is to have some kind of a derogation, but there are important safety and regulatory considerations there which are going to be very, very difficult to overcome. So while the political agreement is there since December to avoid a hard border in Ireland, giving effect to that in a legal sense and in real time on the ground, if you like, whenever Brexit actually happens at the end and whenever the transition comes to an end, is going to be very, very difficult indeed. Now, Michael touched on the DUP and how important the party is to Theresa May's power balance. We still have a political stalemate in Northern Ireland. How far has the Brexit issue exacerbated political divisions in Northern Ireland? I think essentially that this really intensifies the pressure on the two main political blocs, if you like, in Northern Ireland right now. That's the DUP, which is propping up Theresa May, and then Sinn Féin, which is the Irish Republican Party. Even if agreement is reached 
to restore the power-sharing executive, and it's been 13 months now since its collapse, and there's been several attempts to put it back together, each of them a failure. Even if agreement is reached, the top item on the agenda of the incoming executive is going to be the question of Brexit. And on this question, the DUP and Sinn Féin are essentially bitterly divided. The DUP campaigned for Brexit. It is wedded to the policy of Theresa May, which is to leave the customs union and the internal market and all the other things that people have been discussing for many, many months now. But on the other side, Sinn Féin is calling for special status for Northern Ireland, for the six counties there to remain within the EU under special arrangements. Now, that's simply not on for the DUP or the UK government, but it does demonstrate the extent to which the two parties, which are supposed to be sitting around the table together, power sharing in government and a devolved government together, how far apart they are. So do you think the Good Friday Agreement, which has held up for nearly 20 years, is at risk? I think the fundamental peace settlement remains. I don't see a major threat to the peace in that way. However, it is clear that the institutions established under the Good Friday Agreement, which awaits its 20th anniversary in April, it's clear that those institutions are under pressure. There has been no power-sharing government for 13, almost 14 months now, and it's proving very difficult to put them back together again. And the more this stalemate goes on, the more difficult it becomes to put it all back together again. But I don't believe there's any desire on any side or any public support for a return to conflict that would lead to the agreement coming apart in a very fundamental way. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, the lack of a government in Belfast means that Northern Ireland, which depends very heavily on agricultural subsidies from the European Union, has no voice in the Brexit talks. How worrying is this for the province? Well, I think that the lack of a voice is the lack of a formal voice, which would be the voice of a devolved government which speaks with the authority of all the communities on the island. I think it's clear that the DUP, in the light of the confidence and supply agreement, has the ear of Theresa May, and the DUP almost toppled the political agreement in December to move into the next phase of the talks. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty, there's absolutely a problem there. And, I mean, we have the case where the beef industry, which is quite powerful in Northern Ireland, in the last number of months came out with a report and a formal statement calling for a five-year transition, which would be more than twice as long as the transition being sought by the British government at this time. And that, to my mind, is a reflection of concern within the agricultural community in Northern Ireland that when you get into the nitty-gritty bread-and-butter issues of what actually is going to happen to people's incomes and to trading arrangements, it's going to be very, very difficult. And those very knotty questions which remain to be settled at the moment have been subordinated to the big-picture politics. Let's take a few questions from listeners now. One of our listeners, Brian O'Donoghue, says he runs a software services business and would like to know how leaving the single market and customs union would affect his business. He says he works with two companies in the UK from his base in Ireland and has no idea how the exit from the single market will affect his ability to sell services in Britain. Another listener, Claire Carr, is originally from Britain but has lived and worked in Dublin for 17 years. She is a painter who shows and sells work primarily in London, taking the paintings over via the Dublin Holyhead Ferry. She now wonders whether this way of life built up over many years will be sustainable. 
She says, In the scheme of things, my own situation is small fry. But Brexit will affect many thousands of people in the arts, visual artists, musicians, dancers, singers. How will this group of people who rely on international exchange and who often work in many countries to make a living manage after the UK leaves the EU? Can I just ask you, Michael, what's your response to these concerns? I think in response to Claire's concerns, which are essentially about the physical movement and residency of people between the UK and Ireland, in a way this has been one of the only real successes so far in the withdrawal negotiations. It's the agreement to maintain the common travel area between the UK and Ireland, which allows people to move without physical border checks but also to keep the existing residency and associated rights for citizens between the UK and Ireland, which are actually better and stronger than those which exist for other citizens of the EU. So regardless of what happens to other UK nationals living in the UK, or indeed the UK nationals living in other member states, at least as between the UK and Ireland, movement and residency rights for each other citizens shouldn't change as a result of the UK leaving the EU. That does bring us on, though, to Brian's concerns, and here the news isn't quite so positive, because on almost every other aspect of the relationship between the UK and the EU, beyond withdrawal, or at least beyond transition, the picture is very, very unclear. We know that the situation is going to change, and by default, the UK will simply become a third country in relation to the EU and its member states. UK citizens and businesses will simply become third country nationals. So all of the benefits of the single market, the rights to free movement, mutual recognition of national standards, harmonized EU rules and joint supervision and so on, all of those will cease for UK nationals doing business in the EU. And of course, EU nationals seeking to do business in the UK will simply become subject to whatever the UK rules happen to be. That will have enormous impact in some sectors, more limited impact in others, depending on the degree of regulation. But that default position, Brian probably needs to be aware, is subject to a couple of caveats. First of all, there are certain rules of the World Trade Organization that will provide a baseline for mutual treatment between the EU and the UK, but it is a relatively low baseline, especially in the field of service provision. Secondly, the EU and the UK, we know, are going to try to agree a new relationship in trade as well as other fields such as security. The problem is, of course, that we're still waiting for the UK to bring forward detailed as well as credible proposals for what that relationship might be. And in the meantime, the EU is clear that the UK's own sort of red lines on various issues are going to severely limit the scope for an ambitious or far-reaching agreement, again, particularly in the field of services. And I suppose the final caveat, which brings us back to Ireland, is that we still don't really know the full implications of the joint report and the UK's unilateral promise to maintain full regulatory alignment between the single market and the UK, or at least the single market and Northern Ireland. So a lot of uncertainty, I'm afraid, Brian, and we'll just all have to hold our breath and see what happens. Well, finally, I'd like to ask all three of you for your view on whether it's possible within the allotted time to find a solution to the complex border issues that Brexit has created. So I'm going to start with you, Arthur. Is it possible within the allotted time? Very difficult to say, save in that I think the experience of people who observe politics and uh, people involved in politics is that things that need to get settled generally are settled when the pressure is on and when deadlines loom and indeed when deadlines pass. And I think such is the amount of time left now, that short amount of time, 
the pressure now is going to be on to actually reach some kind of an agreement, I think because there is an overwhelming interest on both sides, in the UK and in the EU, no matter what some people would say, because there is an overwhelming interest in reaching an agreement, I think ultimately a deal will be done. But giving effect to that deal and meeting the questions that fall out of it is going to be very difficult. Michael? I think there are only two really credible solutions. The first is for the UK as a whole to remain within both the single market and the customs union. The second is for Northern Ireland at least to remain within the single market and the customs union. There is a third option, which is simply to cancel Brexit. But I think all three of those solutions obviously pose quite serious political challenges, which will make them difficult to deliver by this government. Okay, thank you. Now in the studio, James, what about you? Well, if you look at Michael's three possible solutions, each of them doesn't look like it's going to happen. The UK is not going to stay in the single market and the customs union. That's Mrs May's position. Northern Ireland is not going to become aligned to the Republic because the DUP will refuse to allow that to happen. And Mrs May says that Brexit is irreversible. So the question then is, where does that leave Leo Varadkar and the Irish government? I think ultimately... My assumption is that it all really will depend on how much he really wants to press for an absolutely legally binding clarification, either of the technology solution, solution B, or alternatively the detail of regulatory alignment between Northern Ireland and the Republic or the Republic and the United Kingdom. If he really wants to press it, and it seems to me he's done electorally very well by the way he's taken this argument to the UK government, then he's really going to put the May government on the spot and it's going to be difficult. The trouble is, if the May government responds and says, if you push us too far, well, there's going to be no deal, that could very significantly adversely affect the Irish economy, which would be very badly hit by a no-deal outcome, as well as the UK government. So it might be that ultimately it boils down to the politics in the final days before an agreement over who blinks first. Arthur, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, the basic point remains that this is the single biggest political challenge for Leo Varadkar. He assumed power, not after an election. He ultimately is going to need his own mandate. The confidence and supply agreement that underpins his government is set to expire at the end of this year. Therefore, he is going to have to go to the Irish people, to the country, in a general election, later or sooner. And that, in turn is going to increase the political stakes for Leo Varadkar as these negotiations intensify in the coming months. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you to James, Arthur and Michael, and thank you for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight with another episode of Brexit Unspun. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.